In the scripture reading that we just heard read, we find the people of Israel in the midst of a crisis of trust. Even though they've become a settled people, they're no longer wandering around in the wilderness and now they are building their lives in Canaan, they are still a tribal people, united not by some autocrat, united not by a centralized government, but they are ruled by judges, um, and they are held together by their covenant to Yahweh, who is seen as their leader and their king. These judges mete out justice, and they lead people into battle through times of crisis, and they're acting as divinely appointed lawyers, act, uh, leaders, acting on God's behalf. The trouble is, as of late, some of these judges, including Samuel's own sons, are clearly not acting on God's behalf. They're acting on their own behalf. They're perverting justice for their own advantage, which is a fancy way of saying they are as corrupt as all get out. So as a result, the people of Israel decide that it is time for a change. They see the nations around them functioning very differently according to a different governance model altogether. All the nations around them have kings to look up to. And the people of Israel decide that that's what they want to. They want a king to rule over them, to unite them and to govern them and to go before them and to fight their battles. So the elders of the people of Israel go to their trusted judge and spiritual leader, Samuel, and make this request. Samuel doesn't like it. He takes it personally. He takes it really personally as a rejection of his leadership and probably his inability to contain his corrupt sons. But God tells him very clearly, look, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. In asking for a human king, they're rejecting me as their king. And I'm willing to give them what they want. But first, they better know that what they're asking for is going to lead to some pretty serious consequences. If they just look around at their neighbors, they're going to see that with a king will come military conscription, forced labor, seizure of their land, and heavy taxation. Are they ready for that? The people of Israel insist that they are. They simply must have a king to rule over them. Well, this turns out to be a very pivotal moment in Israel's history. They have turned from their trust in God as their leader and king to trust in human power and authority. And the result isn't always pretty. In fact, according to the biblical witness, this shift in trust ultimately contributes to this nation's fall. If only, if only they could have maintained their conviction in God we trust. Just like our nation claims to, in God we trust. We're reminded of it every time we make a purchase. Unless, of course, you use your credit card. Since 1955, all of our U.S. currency, every single paper bill, every single coin bears that inscription. 
In God we trust. And in 1956, it became the official motto of the United States, signed into law by President Eisenhower at the height of the Cold War. In God we trust. It seems like such a laudable motto, a laudable goal. But I'm here to confess this morning that I'm not entirely comfortable with it. We use God's name here, but I'm left wondering, in which God are we being asked to trust? Now, some of my confusion comes because the motto is very conspicuously placed on our money. So does this association with this motto and our money suggest that we are being invited to trust in a God who ordains and blesses our particular economic system? Or might we be asked to trust in money itself? And appearing as it does in our money, the motto also appears alongside some very powerful symbols of nationalism, past presidents, our national monuments, and on all of our coins, I actually went through and looked in my coin purse, on all of our coins appears the word liberty. Does this association, motto, and nation suggest that we're being asked to trust in a God who blesses our nation particularly and values all that it stands for? In the end, perhaps the best indicator of who we are as a nation and where we place our trust is not through a motto that appears on our currency, but through hard facts about where we invest our resources. And here I find myself asking, what does it indicate about where we place our trust when nearly half of every U.S. tax dollar is dedicated to military spending, military spending past and present? or when U.S. military spending accounts for roughly 41% of the world's total military spending, and when that 41% is as much as the military expenditures of the next 14 top military spenders combined. After the U.S., China comes in as the highest military spender at 8%. Yes, we can say as a nation, in God we trust. But it appears that what we truly trust is our sense of safety and security and well-being in our military might, since this is by far where we most heavily invest our resources of treasure and blood. Having said that, God most certainly is in the picture our nation does seem to need God. We need God to legitimize our national priorities, to bless our actions, and to intervene to protect the interests of our nation. We need a God who is on our side. But as followers of Jesus, we need to be asking, is this the God that we see and that we know through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior? Just who do we understand this God to be? 
Let's just take a moment now to listen to some insight from the Apostle Paul who, about who he understands the God of Jesus Christ to be. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See? Everything. Everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this passage, we catch a glimpse of a transforming God, one who through Christ is making all things, it's making everything new. We also see that God's method of transformation is not coercion or the use of violence or force. God's method is enemy love. In Jesus, we see God taking the initiative to reach out to the enemy, to the world, to us, to mend the relationship that has been broken, in fact, the relationship that has been violated not by God, but by humankind, by us. This initiative is costly. In Jesus, God comes to us and walks with us, reveals himself to us, and gives his life, his very life for us because God so deeply longs for our reconciliation. And we, who have received this precious gift, are entrusted with a special calling. We're called to carry this reconciliation into the world. This is the God whom we, who claim Jesus as Lord, are called to trust. Not a God who seeks to destroy the enemy, but a God who reaches out to make peace with the enemy. What would it look like to put our trust in this God? And what would it look like to bear witness to this God's ways? This is a reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6 verses 27 through 36. But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who who curse you, 
Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes from away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you also, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. As I read and as I reflect on these words of Jesus, it becomes clear to me that bearing witness to an enemy loving God is not a passive affair. Just listen to all the active verbs in these verses. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. When someone strikes you on the cheek, don't cower or run away. Offer the other cheek as well. Your offender may need to think twice about it, but at least you've presented them with a choice. And when someone comes after you for your coat, do not let them take it from you. Give it to them, plus more. And if you're left standing naked without your shirt, then perhaps your offender will be able to more clearly see the true implications of his or her actions. There is so much that could be said about these verses, especially about the cultural context, like why someone might be slapping you in the first place or why someone might be confiscating your coat. But we don't have time to get into all of that this morning. Maybe that's for another sermon down the road. But in the end, in the end, it's really about this. And this comes from verse 31, chapter, Luke 6, chapter, verse 31. Do to others, do t- even to your worst enemy, not what you think they deserve, but what you would have them do to you. Treat them as you yourself would wish to be treated. Not because it's practical, not because it's particularly effective strategy, but because we are bearing witness to an enemy loving God who we learn in these verses is kind even to the ungrateful and the wicked. We do it because we are called to be merciful just as our God is merciful. Bearing witness to this merciful, enemy-loving God is not easy work. It pretty much goes against everything that we know. 
in a culture that believes people ought to get what they deserve and the use of violence and force is justifiable to achieve our own good ends and that self-defense is an inalienable right, this approach does not make any sense. And it probably doesn't even sound wise. It doesn't seem wise at all. And we probably encounter resistance when we offer it as an alternative to our world's dominant way of thinking and being. And that is understandable. That is understandable because there is a lot at stake here. What is at stake is our freedom, our security, our very way of life. Things that we hold sacred. Things that we are ready to die for and even kill for. They are that important because deep down inside, we are afraid. We are afraid of losing these things. We simply cannot imagine life without them. From this place of fear, we are tempted to turn to domination and coercion and even violence to secure those things that we hold so dear. But this morning, we hear a different invitation. We hear an invitation to turn to God for our ultimate security. I want to be clear. The security that comes from God is not one that guarantees that life will be easy or that there will be no struggle or that our nation will always be a superpower. The security that comes from God does guarantee that the world is in God's hands and that we are held and supported by God's love no matter what no matter what trials, no matter what troubles befall us. This love is our refuge and strength, a present help in times of terror and, and trouble. Trusting in this love, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, Trusting in this love, we will be still and know that God is God. Even though the nations rage and kingdoms totter, we will not fear because we know that love, not the power of death, not the power of evil, but love is Lord of heaven and earth. In this God, may we trust.